Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us. A journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. There are basically two types of people. People who accomplish things, and people who claim to have accomplished things. The first group is less crowded. Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Tyler Clausen. And I'm Hannah Lambert. And that was off the cuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, I literally, as we were listening to our intro, I typed in. <laughs> Mark Twain quotes. <laughs> that's the first one that came up. That's a pretty good one, though. Yeah, that's. I mean, I have a whole page of them now. Do the right thing. It will gratify some people and astonish the rest. So by Tyler's accent, you can probably tell that he listened to an audio book for her for this episode. <laughs> I read actual words, so yeah. I don't have an accent. So Hannah got this. better at air quotes writing. Writing. And I got better at accents, which everyone that listens to our show knows. You're already great at I'm already so good at accents. <laughs> no room for improvement. Absolutely none. Oh, welcome to our show, guys. Hannah finally took a nap, and she's rested, and she's ready. I'm to, raring to, to go. Roll. I have been working. Um, technically, I'm at my work site for 10 hours a day. Oh, I thought you were going to say I'm at my work site right now. And I'm like, are you fudging <laughs> yeah, your time card? I, I wish. Um, but I also have to drive for an hour and 45 minutes there and back. So I'm, I've am i been having 13-hour days for the last couple of weeks. So uh, we're both a couple of little tired babies. <laughs> we're both like competing for most overworked <laughs> and exhausted right now, we, which is a horrible we're competition. In a competition. <laughs> we're just, oh, I have, I'm more tired than you are. And then I don't get a reply because Hannah just is asleep. I'm asleep on the table. Yeah. yeah. So like if I manage <laughs> to say. crawled up on the table and napping like a cat. Just like, I'm not even, this isn't even a competition, bro. Right. If I say words in the right order for most of this podcast, I'll consider it a win. Yeah. Great. So it's going to be just a listener and I and a sleeping cat Hannah. That's, Perfect. That's the t-shirt idea. We're, sleeping we cat already Hannah. got it. Oh my God, I'm scared to see this. <laughs> please, if we have an artist, please someone draw that. Oh God. We need a Tie Tie the Samurai t-shirt and a cat, a sleeping cat Hannah t-shirt. <laughs> please make it a cute cat. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Oh man, we should talk about our author. And our author, uh, Mark Twain, the first thing y'all need to know about him. Y'all. Is that is not his name. <laughs> That is not his name. Did you ever find out what Mark Twain actually means? Uh, well, I found out the story that he tells about where he got his pseudonym. Oh, really? Yeah, he stole it. Oh, from someone from else? From someone else. <laughs> so Really? We'll get there. Okay. Well, yeah, we will get there because there's an actual meaning to what Mark Twain actually is. Is there actually a meaning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, then it was a smart theft, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark Twain's real name is Samuel Langhorn Clemens. Which, that sounds like a great name. It's the most Southern name you could have. Samuel Langhorn Clemens. <laughs> and uh, adding to the Southernness is that he was born in <laughs> Florida, 
Missouri. Yes. So just two southern places smashed into one. <laughs> Where are you from? Florida? Oh, yeah, I'm from the Panhandle. No. Missouri. Florida, Missouri. <laughs> so he was born there on November 30th, 1835. And I accidentally wrote 19 a few times in my no. notes. Uh, but no, we're going all the way back to 1835. It was almost 200 years ago. Yes. You realize that? So long ago. That is weird. It boggles my mind. I was just a boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so was he. He was the sixth child of John Marshall and Jane Lampton Clemens. Only three of the children would survive because this was the 1800s and everybody died. I'm going over uh, I'm going over your outline right now and I'm looking for a specific thing that I want to talk about between his, his mom and dad. I don't know what that is, so just oh, talk man. about it now. No, no, no. Let's talk more about Samuel Clemens. So he was born prematurely, which led to a lot of poor health for the first decade of his life, and that meant uh, he grew up kind of coddled by his mother. She, mm-hmm. uh, or he also tried. Um, God, I'm like so tired right now. Yeah. Uh, she tried lots of like herbal remedies and stuff on him, mm-hmm. through, which may have made his health worse actually yeah because not surprisingly this is when they were they were still doing bloodletting at this point yeah like yo come on <laughs> maybe don't try to treat your son but yeah so he hey spent- let's not treat a fever with leeches <laughs> just a quick little idea uh, we're not doctors but it seems like common sense <laughs> i don't have a master's degree but leeches are a bad idea. Always bad. So he spent a lot of time indoors as a boy, and it kind of reminded me of C.S. Lewis's upbringing, except that C.S. Yeah. Lewis wasn't actually that sick of a child, and no, it sounds like yeah. uh, Samuel Clemens was actually pretty sick. Yeah, because um, he was an actual premature baby. Yeah. Like, he had a lot of health issues. And something that I really liked, uh, the, the book that I listened to was, um, uh, so I read uh, Mark Twain. A Life, very creative, um, <laughs> by Ron Powers, which is one of the coolest names ever. That is a great I'm name. Ron Powers. It sounds made up. It does sound made up. Is it? I don't know. Is that a pseudonym? It could be. Maybe it's just Mark Twain, but a different name. <gasps> anyway, um, he talked about how he was a premature baby, and a lot of premature babies, they develop differently. Um, and one of the first things that develops on humans is ears and the ability to hear. And so um, there's always in his writing and the way that he does his speeches and the way that he talks and all that, he is very much attentive to the way that people talk and sound and the sounds of things. And so they think, he thinks at least, the, the biographer thinks that there's this this connection between like how he was developed as a premature baby and he could hear the world around him and so his hearing was over heightened and then that became a part of who he is and that's why he would talk a very specific way and he would write sounds the way that he would write sounds and oh that's and really interesting yeah, it is it's super cool ah so um he turned out to be a very mischievous child, partly because he was cooped up all the time, and he would really test the limits of uh, his mother's affection and patience. He would play lots of pranks. Um, and then one thing I read that I liked, uh, when Jane, his mom, was in her 80s, he asked her about um, his poor health in those early years and said, quote, I suppose that during that whole time you were uneasy about me? She answered, yes, the whole time. Afraid I wouldn't live? 
No, she said, afraid you would. <laughs> so if he can be said to have inherited his sense of humor from anyone, it's probably his mother because sure. his dad was kind of a serious, like stressed out man. He had a lot of financial troubles, oh, yeah. uh, a lot of business failures, but his mom had a Which pretty good sense like, of humor. It's just like the uh, Melvilles. Yeah. Like, just like the Melvilles. It seems like it's a part of a lineage when you have a dad or grandpa who is very much a business person, but they're very bad at it, or they have really bad breaks. If you try to do the same thing, you're gonna you're gonna have a shitty time. And it was really interesting because not only was his dad like bad at finances, but he also like had this trumped up view of how he was like he thought they were gonna end up rich, and oh, that's yeah. something like throughout his father's whole life, he was always like, "I've got this parcel of land in Tennessee, and somehow we're gonna get rich off of it." So they grew up like poor. But thinking they were gonna be rich someday. Yeah, and and it sucks too because I kind of identify with that. I mean, like, look at where we're at. We're in my my podcast studio, and I'm like, one day I won't need to work full time. I'm gonna. I don't know why I'm turning into Mark Twain. I'm gonna have a whole podcast studio and blah 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 and this and this and this. Like, it doesn't take much for Hannah to have to sit here and listen to me ramble on about things she just has to go hey tyler what's up i'll tell you what's I'll up tell you what's i'm gonna up. get rich you know like i have that same mentality oh no uh one of the things um with his parents uh talking about how his dad is a very serious man and, and his mom is mischievous so um that she i don't think she was engaged to someone else before john uh but she definitely had other people interested and people think that she only married John because another um, beau like pissed her off. And so she married John out of spite oh, just to piss off the other guy. Love a good spite marriage. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this guy just because you pissed me off. Wow. And so their their marriage was pretty loveless. And it's like, it's gone down as like everybody knows, like they didn't. <laughs> they weren't into each other that the, much. <laughs> to the point where when John died, um, there's a story that, yeah, spoiler, his dad died 200 <laughs> years ago. Um, that when he died, that um, his mom had the body um, autopsied and looked for like venereal diseases and stuff. Because she's pretty sure that he was cheating on her. Oh my because God. Because she wouldn't give him any. <laughs> Other than, Other the, than six the six times children? they definitely did it. <laughs> I mean, that's, you get six, John. That's it. And if three of them die, well, that's just how the cookie crumbles. <laughs> you can only have sex when one of our children dies. Wow, that's a sad thought. Oh, well, in 1839, the family moved about 30 miles away to um, the Mississippi River port town called Hannibal. Uh, his dad was looking for greater financial opportunity. I guess he sort of found it. John opened a store and also became a justice of the peace, which is not as powerful as it sounds. It's Nowadays, like, it's like it, it's a cool thing to do. But back then, it was basically just like everybody uh, was a justice of the peace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was not as cool as it sounds. Um, and he kept building up all these debts. Uh, and yeah, there was the thing where he he thought they were going to get rich someday. Um, so kind of like a, a tense family environment. But. It seems like Samuel Clemens didn't notice that much. Um, in a lot of ways, Hannibal was a really exciting and inspiring mm -hmm. place for a young child to grow up. Um, I mean, it was a port town, so all sorts of exciting people were coming yeah. through. Gamblers, riverboat pilots, raftsmen, other travelers. Um, so he really got a lot of the inspiration that would influence his work from growing up there. 
Um, he and his friends played pirates. Um, they had like an island in the middle of the Mississippi that they would swim or boat out to. They had caves near town. Basically, I wish I grew up here. Yeah. L- growing up on the Mississippi River is definitely land of adventure. <laughs> right. Um, and among his childhood friends was a boy called Tom Blankenship, who was um, a poor kid uh, that twain or Clemens. It's very confusing when he has a pseudonym. That Clemens. We're gonna in his childhood. We're calling him Clemens. We're That's calling him Clemens. Name. So he used Tom Blankenship as um, the model for the character Huckleberry Finn later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you did you get to the story about how he almost died? How uh, Clemens, Clemens did? almost died. I mean, of the measles. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. That was in Hannibal, right? Yeah, that was with with uh, Blank and blah blah blah. Did he catch it from him? Yeah, because so so um, Blankenship, right? Yeah. So Blankenship gets it, right? And Clemens um, basically is like, as a kid, he's like, I know I'm gonna get it. I know for a fact I'm gonna get it. So let's go ahead and hurry up the process, and I'm gonna go stay with my friend who has it. And he goes into his friend's house, sneaks into his friend's house, and lays down with him to hang out with him and, you know, comfort him. And then the mom comes in and is like, what the fuck are you doing here? Get out. <laughs> so she kicks him out. And so he goes around the house, climbs up the side of the building and goes through the window and hangs out with him all night and then catches the, the measles and almost dies. <laughs> and that could have cut his career very short. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, a lot going on in 1830s Mississippi, or uh, Missouri. Uh, so, also during this time, Clemens would spend a lot of time visiting his uncle John's farm near Florida, Missouri, so back where he was originally from, mm-hmm. uh, during the summers, and he played with his cousins. And uh, influentially, he listened to stories told by his um, uncle's slave, who they called Uncle Daniel, yep. um, and he would later become a model for Jim in Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. So basically, he's already got the foundation for Huck Finn sure. at like eight years old or however old he is now. Yeah, man. Um, All those nice things being said, Hannibal was also like a kind of dark place and there was a lot of bad things that happened in his childhood. His sister Margaret died of a fever when he was three years old. Or, yeah, when he was three years old. Yeah. Um, And I think... She's the sister where there was a story where he, like, sleepwalked a lot when he was a kid. And one night he, uh, like, walked into her room and lifted the corner of the bedsheet, which I guess was, like, thought to be an omen that if that happened, like, somebody was going to die. Oh, And what? then the next day was when she died. Oh, And no. so, like, he grew up feeling very guilty about this thing that obviously yeah, he didn't do. That's a very common theme for him. Yeah. He, he deals with a lot of guilt throughout his life. Yes. For all the people that die in his life. And by all the people, I mean literally all the people people. in his life. So three years after his sister dies, his brother Benjamin died. I don't think he had any connection to to that death, um, (laughs) spiritually or physically. He jumped out the window and flew like a crow, which is a bad omen. Yes. Everything's a bad omen. (laughs) And then um, in Hannibal, a cholera epidemic killed at least 24 people, which was a lot for a small town like that. Yeah, also his fault. He released the... The cholera. The cholera. Um, <laughs> and then, oh, there was another, like, at one point in his childhood, he, like, what, went into his dad's office and found a dead body in there, because I guess, like, since his dad was justice of the peace, they, like, 
when somebody died, they took the body yeah, to so his someone, office. So someone, someone, I remember this story. It was like a murder or something. Yeah, so, uh, and he actually saw it. He saw, so one dude had said something mean to another dude, and that other dude left and then came back, like, a couple weeks later and shot the first dude, like, right in the chest two or three times. And Clemens, Samuel, he saw it. He I feel like him get- there were two because I remember that one. That's not the same I, one. No, That's I not think, what you're talking about. I think he saw three different like what? Ter- so there was the fight, the one that you're talking about. Yeah. Once he just walked into his dad's office, like, hey, what? looking for dad, and there's a dead body in there. What the hell, man? And then the third one was when he and his friends um, were like, they were out playing or whatever, and um, they went they on were a fishing long, long and journey. they found the drowned and mutilated body of a fugitive slave. So stand by me. Yeah, it's stand by <laughs> yeah, me right. by Stephen King. <laughs> um, and with the with the fugitive slave incident, it turned out that Tom Blankenship's yeah. brother yeah. had been secretly taking food to the runaway slave for weeks before somebody found him found and him killed and him. Killed yeah. So very disturbing incidents happening in his childhood. <clears throat> Um, and then in 1847, his dad died of pneumonia, which didn't do great things for the family's financial instability. Sure. Um, so by that time, they'd already had to like auction off property, sell their only slave, Jenny. Uh, they were taking in renters, even sold their furniture. So they were in a um, bad, bad place. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess I want to mention it real quick because we've already talked about it twice. There are or three times now. This is a time when there are slaves, and and I'm I, <clears throat> I got into Mark Twain, uh, not knowing much about him. Um, I mean, I, I obviously I read Tom Sawyer when I was in middle school. I watched the like the Disney one from the '90s with. Uh, I don't think I've even seen the Disney one. What's his name? The kid from Tool Time, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Was it live action? Yeah. What? Jonathan Taylor <laughs> Thomas was in. He was Tom Sawyer. It was great, man. Oh, man. If you haven't seen it, you definitely need to watch it. Um, <clears throat> I like how when I look it up, the first uh, search result is Jonathan Taylor Thomas now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, what happened to him now? He looks exactly the same. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so that that's basically what I knew of, of Mark Twain. And I had always thought, I don't know why. I know that Huckleberry Finn was banned from schools at one point. Yeah. Well, it was banned like when it was published and right, now it's like banned like again. <laughs> um and then and so uh, for some reason in my head I always thought that Mark Twain was like super racist. Ah. Uh. So going into this, you know, it's like okay, he's in a time of slaves and his family owned slaves, but as I was reading more and getting to know him more, I realized that it was almost the opposite. Right. So, yeah, I mean, he, he had that complicated background growing up in Missouri, a slave yeah. state, and um, basically being taught by everyone around him that slavery was totally fine. Um, but like And in, yet. Internally, he, right. like, found the whole thing very cruel and sad. and Because um, his friends were slaves. Yeah. His friends were the kids of slaves. And, and like and Uncle uh, Daniel yeah. on his his uncle's farm. Yeah, he he would hang out with these people, and that was one of the big things he would. Um, the the biographer of this book talked about like you know again he would hear things, he'd listen, and a big part of what he would write was the way that slaves and blacks would would talk. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was a big deal because he he didn't do it necessarily as a parody. Which, in that time, when you wrote, um, 
the way that you know the the blacks talk it was a parody it was a joke it was a way to make something fun or funny and he's like that's just how they talk like that's just <laughs> what i'm gonna write because that's just how people talk so just super interesting I, i'm i'm really excited to get into that a little bit yeah i think um that's <clears throat> one of the things that he's recognized for is being able to capture people's diction Yes. Like whether it's poor white people, whether it's slaves and everybody, yeah. he he listens to the way people talk. And like you he said, your biographer it exactly. speculates it's he just listens really well. Yeah. Um. So after his dad died, Clemens worked lots of odd jobs and his childhood was effectively over. Like at, at this point, he's like 13 years old. Yeah. He's only <laughs> seen like 15 people die. Yeah. <laughs> If you don't count all the dozens who died from cholera, too. <laughs> so um, in 1848, when he was 13, he became a printer's apprentice um, for the Missouri Courier. Um, and he, like, actually lived in the publisher's house um, and sort of got to continue schooling and, like, <coughs> hanging out with his friends or whatever, but mostly was, like, working there. Um and then at one point he worked he worked like at a lot of different publications. I'm yeah. just gonna oh, stre- yeah. he worked so many places. It's not like <laughs> Ernest Hemingway who went to the Kansas City Star and that's where he was <laughs> until he became Ernest Hemingway. Well, in the the Toronto one. Like right. Hemingway had a countable <clears throat> number of jobs. Right. If I miss like one odd job at age fifteen, apologies, Mark Twain <laughs> enthusiast. <laughs> but yeah, so he worked at uh the Hannibal Journal too. Uh, also worked as a typesetter in St. Louis at one point. Yeah. And I guess that's the person who, like, actually lays out the, the, the like, metal letters. Yeah. Which sounds very boring. So <laughs> tedious. Could you imagine? And, like, a lot of stress, too. You mess it up, and that is getting printed everywhere. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's terrifying. I don't know, man. I watched um, Little Women with Rebecca, and the whole point of the of the movie at least because I, I never read the book was she's writing the, she's a writer and then at the end she writes a book and it gets published and it i don't know why it never hit me till then where it shows them like putting the little <laughs> the little letters in and i'm like i'm sorry what, what? <laughs> you have individual letters not even words that you have to put onto this roller thing and then you just, what, you print that 50 times and then you do it again with another page? That's insane. I could not imagine having to do that. I I get irritated that I have to go up <laughs> on my computer to You mean edit. I have to scroll? <laughs> yeah, so that's what he was doing at one point. Um, and then I don't know if there's more like early, early job stuff you want to say nah. before he went to New York City to work at a printing shop there, then Pennsylvania, then D.C., then back to New York City. So he's, like, bouncing all over the eastern uh, I mean, he's seaboard. going wherever he can get work. Basically, yeah. Um, and then at one point he went to uh, write for his brother's newspaper in Iowa, uh, his brother Orion, which I totally thought was Orion the whole time until I was listening to something and they pronounced it Orion. And you finally... <laughs> I good, was like, good, oh, yes. Because then now you won't sound like an idiot yes. on our show. <laughs> Um, and then his brother went to a different city. I think it was also in Iowa. Um, and Samuel Clemens was a partner in that business, but then moved to Cincinnati, Ohio to work as a typesetter again. 
Um, and then 1857 when, was when he finally booked passage on a steamboat bound for New Orleans. Uh, and he was planning to find his fortune in South America, I guess. Mm-hmm. But then he saw a better opportunity and convinced um, the accomplished Captain Horace Bixby to take him on as an apprentice. Yeah. Uh, one quick little thing. I don't know where it is. I think it's the second time he left home to go somewhere. Um, I thought it was the nineteen or the 1857 passage. Um, he talks about it and says that he he had gone back home and, and started working again and someone dropped or, or so he found $50 on the road which back then is it's like that's th- a, a ton of money yeah it's a lot. and he put it into the newspaper two days in a row nobody claimed it so he just used it to book himself passage perfect and he's like that's how i started my steamboat <laughs> career you know it was from god himself <laughs> I mean, hey, he put it in the newspaper, not once, but twice. He tried, yeah. Um, And then while he was doing his steamboating, he arranged to get a job for his brother Henry on the riverboat Pennsylvania, but the boilers exploded. Okay, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. We got to back up. You're already killing off Henry? We're killing off Henry. There's so much between starting a boat, uh, his steamboat career, and killing Henry. Okay, well... Now that I've spoiled Henry's death. Henry dies, everybody. Henry, his brother, his little brother, died. So he becomes, he becomes, uh, Samuel, Mark Twain, becomes a steamboat uh, person. He works on it. I don't know exactly what he was doing. Kind of everything. And, yeah, he's working with Bixby for a while. Um, and in that time, he ends up meeting Laura Wright. I was going to leave Laura out of this. Why? <laughs> She's important. He pined over her his entire life. And it started here. It's so creepy, though, because she was eight years younger than him, which means Dude, she was like a young teenager. Definitely is creepy. <laughs> He's almost 20 and she's 13 years old when he meets her. So, yes, obviously creepy <laughs> at that point. But but he pines over her and like they they he thinks that there's going to be this big romance that they're gonna do and he's it was like gonna, Hemingway with the nurse <laughs> very much like that. where did he Almost, meet Laura though uh I think he met her while like I think he met like in her a whole family at the port yeah and at like something like he went to dinner with her or something I don't know I might be confusing that with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell because I'm also listening to that <laughs> at the same time uh and it takes place <laughs> almost at the same time um but he so so he meets her and he's like smitten. He's in love with this chick. And then at at one point she takes off and he's like, Let we're I'm gonna make it work. Long distance. We're gonna do this, babe. And then she's like, Nah, I'm good. <laughs> and he was heartbroken. Like oh, Laura. just it was a it was such a it was some tainted love, man. <laughs> and uh so and so then he gets his brother to, to come join him to work on steamboats. Because he's like, yo, this is the best, though. We get to ride up and down Mississippi. We get to see everything. We get to, we get to do anything we want. And it's so much fun. He loved working for Bixby. He loved it because that dude was cool. And so Henry comes on board and helps out for a while. And they're working together. And then they both get transferred over to a new pilot, um, some guy named Brown. Uh, yeah, Brown. <clears throat> and Brown was a fucking asshole, right? He thought because um Twain would t- 
talk slower than other people that he was lazy and like he'd rock back and forth twain would he had this habit of always rocking back and forth so he thought he was just like this weird lazy kid that didn't ever want to do anything that came from like this rich family that and so like so one day like twain was just kind of standing around waiting for something to do and brown's like you know whoa you're not gonna get to work then and and (laughs) twain's like Yo, I, you haven't given me any orders. And he's like, oh, you need orders in order to do work, huh, rich boy? I'll give you some orders. And then he made him work for like 12 hours straight with no break or something Aww. like that. Dude was a douchebag. To the point where, so Henry's job was something to the effect, uh, and forgive me, steamboat enthusiasts, I don't know. <laughs> I'm from Oregon. We've got regular boats. <laughs> Uh, not even sailboats motorboats <laughs> anyway so something to the effect of like the pilot is in the back steering the whole thing but then the captain's up front and so Henry's job or anyone's job at that point I guess would be like if the if the captain makes an order they have to relay that information to the pilot so he's like a runner basically and so like so the captain makes an order of like hey you need to make a left at the next bank or whatever and the information doesn't get all the way to Brown somehow, right? And everyone's like, yo, Brown, go left. And, you know, he's just in Mickey Mouse and in the, in the <laughs> right? And then and then um, he doesn't make the left. So everyone's like, so the captain comes back. He's like, yo, what the fuck, dude? I told you to make a left. Now we're going to be off course or whatever. And he's like, well, Henry didn't do his job. And, and Henry's like, uh, yeah, I did. I told you, dude. And then Mark Twain's all like, yeah. I was there with it. He told you. You just couldn't hear him because you're over there whistling like Mickey Mouse. And so then Brown starts to go after Henry to attack him. A boy, this old man's about to attack this boy. So then Mark Twain's like, yo, step up, bitch. And he gets in between them and starts decking on Brown. And they get into a fist fight right there in the pilot's cabin. And then so the captain comes in and kicks them all off the ship. And instead of uh, prosecuting Brown... Because he ends up in jail for attacking children, um, they they get him. They get Mark Twain to drop the charges or something, and then, and I didn't quite understand this. So the captain is like, "Okay, obviously, Samuel, you can't be on the same ship as Brown. So on, so we're gonna get you another boat that leaves in two days. While we leave, Brown's gonna keep his job. He's not gonna have anything bad happen to him." And your brother Henry's going to be on the same boat as him when we leave. And you're going to stay here alone for two days. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> that makes no sense. If it was my brother, be like, uh, no, he's staying with me and we'll leave. Or, or uh, here's Nobody a better goes idea. with Brown. <laughs> here's a better idea. How about Brown gets the fuck off a boat? <laughs> so, so Twain stays in um, wherever that port is and his brother Henry goes on the same boat with Brown and they leave on it's the Pennsylvania they're on yeah. the Pennsylvania and they leave for their their embarkment or whatever and then boom and then boom and so you miss so much <laughs> okay that's not a short little story that's a big deal because because Samuel holds that forever if he had been on that boat if he had taken Henry's place, if he hadn't brought Henry on to be a steamboat person, 
right? Like there's so many things that he holds on to for the rest of his life. And I can totally understand that. I would feel the same way. If my brother, if I, if I brought Cameron, our sometimes producer into podcasting <laughs> and then our podcast studio blew up. I'd feel responsible for his death. I'm sorry. That's just a ridiculous image. <laughs> I'm trying to look around the room and see what could possibly blow up and kill us. And it's a sad story. On top of all that, you get to the actual terribleness of this boat blowing up. Because people, like, lots of people lost their lives. And if they didn't lose their lives, they were severely scarred for the rest of their life because you've got flammable things all over this boat. When it blew up, people were incinerated, melted, or they were covered in tar and things that would like latch onto their skin and melt it. And so, um, like they, they found body after body after body of, of person, or they fell into the river and drowned to death. Like, there was nothing, no good came out of this. Did and Brown die, though? Brown did die. That's he the good he, that he, came out of He's one of the of people it. that fell in the river and drowned. Um, and and the last his last words were, my poor wife and children. Literally, they have that on. How do they know that? I don't know. Newspapers <laughs> covered everything back then. And, and that's a good segue, a newspaper covered the moment that... Um, Samuel Mark Twain got to the to the town to the port town where Henry was was being hospitalized. He got he he survived kind of um, and he got taken to a hospital and he was being treated there. But his wounds were very bad. And so Samuel shows up a couple days later because he had to wait. He found out that like the day that it happened and then he had to wait another day and a half or whatever before he could get up there on the boat that they called for him. Right. So he gets up there, finds his brother uh, in the hospital and a newspaper uh, covers the scene of of him actually um, seeing his brother for the first time and like breaking down. Uh, It's really, really sad. It's super tragic. Yeah, it's it's not it's not something to skip over (laughs) because it it defines him so much for the rest of his life, I think. Um, Was it shortly after that that he got out of the. The river boating business? Uh, I believe so. Um, to be completely honest, I, I can't recall where that transition happened, but mm-hmm. I, I can't believe... I know he went back to work as on steamboats, but I don't know if he spent a, much more time on it. Well... I think Civil War happened. Yeah, when the Civil War happened, he was worried that he might be forced to be a gunboat pilot, so he ended his time on the river and went back to Hannibal, where he then joined the pro-secessionist Marion Rangers, but they disbanded after two mostly uneventful weeks. Sure. Um, a few went off and joined other Confederate units, and the rest, including Clemens, deserted. Yeah. So his time in the Civil War was very brief. <laughs> and and to the point of, like, he didn't fight for the Confederates. No. Like, he, like just, he didn't do anything. Yeah, he didn't do anything. <laughs> he was there for two weeks, and then he was like, I'm out. <laughs> and and this is what fueled him to to leave the South. Yeah, because you can't just, like, chill out in the South and, right. not, and not be, be a part, part of, of the it. Confederates. So um, he ended up going West. His brother, Orion, had campaigned for Abraham Lincoln and as a reward was made Secretary of the Nevada Territory. Um, so Clemens went out with him in 1961, 
Nope. Or con- nope. 1861. <laughs> See, I knew that there were places in here where I put 19. 1861. Um, and so he kind of settled in Carson City and then Virginia City, where he ended up reporting at the Territorial Enterprise. Um, and I mean, the West was totally like adventure territory too. Oh, yeah. There was oh, so yeah. much going on out there. There were like the miners, the gold rush. Yep. Uh, uh, I mean, it was what? Uh, 10, 11 years before that, you had the huge gold rush yep. in California. Um, so, yeah, you had a lot of people who were heading out looking for fortune. You know, at, you can see Orion, Orion, Orion. Yes. And <laughs> and uh, Samuel have that part of their dad in them of like, we're going to make it rich. We're going to make it rich. I mean, his brother sort of was, but as oh, a politician. Yeah. Well, and um, it's not the last time Orion gets himself into trouble with business. Right. So they're out there. I mean, they've got like the saloons. It's the Wild West and all that. Um, in 1863, so a couple years after he first got there, um, Clemens was covering the legislative session in Carson City. Um, and this was when he wrote under Mark Twain for the first time. He wrote three pieces for the Enterprise under that pseudonym. Um, And the way that I've seen it told, basically he had known a riverboat pilot, Isaiah Sellers, at one point, who used the pen name Mark Twain, and he always sort of liked it. And he started using it after a mistranscription of a telegram mistakenly informed him that Sellers had died. So he thought, the pen name was up for grabs. Oh, okay. But he hadn't died. He he hadn't died. I mean, he died eventually, but <laughs> sure. No, he, he's still he alive. He stole it to early. <laughs> no, so and um the according to Google. Because I didn't so, see why sellers use that name. Um uh, the mark uh the name Mark Twain is virtually synonymous with the life uh along Mississippi, blah blah blah, Clemens for a sign, blah blah blah. Mark Twain meeting Mark number two was a Mississippi River term, the second mark on the line that measured depth signified uh two fathoms or twelve feet. Safe depth for steamboats. Oh, that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah. So you'd have half twain, quarter twain, and mark twain. Okay, I like his uh, pseudonym now. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, it's it's an actual thing that he took from his like he took obviously from, <laughs> from else, somebody else, but it's relevant to his journey as well. And I, I don't know. I'm I'm struggling here because I I hate the idea that he stole somebody else's genius idea <laughs> uh, because it is a really good name for someone who who was on a steamboat and became a writer. The name Mark Twain. 100% is one of the most genius things ever. So if somebody else came up with that. That kind of sucks that he stole it, but it's also I think he lived up to the genius that it I mean, I think produces. he made it more famous than Isaiah uh, blah, blah, Sellers blah. Yeah. whatever. <laughs> um so yeah, so at this point he was really starting to write more. Some of his articles and like humorous sketches were appearing in publications as far away as um New York City. Um, and around this time, the humorist Artemis Ward, which was also a pseudonym because everybody freaking uses pseudonyms back then. Yeah. I um, don't know what's what's the deal with that. Why I, are pseudonyms so big? I don't know. But Artemis Ward is also a great name. Um, so he invited Clemens, now Twain, um, to contribute to a book of sketches. And for it, Clemens wrote Jim Smiley and his Jumping Frog, which was about like mining camps, I think. No. It wasn't about mining Oh, wait. 
Yeah. No, it was it, it was set in set a mining in mining camp, camps. It's not about mining camps. Well, it's set in them. So. so um I read this. This is literally the first thing that I read while I started doing research on Really? This. Yeah, cuz I bought a book that's like the comic short stories and sketches from Mark Twain. Uh, is it good? No, it's <laughs> fucking dumb. It's so boring and stupid. I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, you are not uh, the 1865 audience then. No, because everyone loved it so much. It didn't make it in the book because it got to the publisher too late, um, but it ended up getting published in the New York Saturday Press and then reprinted across the whole country because everybody loved it. So you know that this, first of all, this story is not original. So again, he's stealing something from somebody else, right? So not only does he steal the name Mark Twain, but he also steals this uh, this story, his first big story. And it comes from he'd be out there mining. They'd be out there doing their little, their little river um, panhandling and stuff. And they'd all just be telling stories and jokes, right? Just like people do now like i i work out in the field as an electrician or low volt installation technician whatever you want to call it <laughs> and i've had people get mad at me for saying you're not an electrician it's like okay whatever <laughs> and um and so like you you're out there and you're just kind of making jokes you're just talking because it's better than not than just sitting there doing nothing right and so they're all telling stories and stuff and this one other dude starts telling the story of this frog that you know this guy was was teaching how to jump and then he he makes a bet goes off to get another frog to bet against it and then while he's gone the other dude fills him up with buckshot and he can't jump like that was that's the whole story that's the whole damn story and that's what mark twain wrote except he wrote it in his mark twain voice and he had this big joke at the end that i do not get (laughs) I, do, I can't stress how annoyed I am about this. I read this. I picked up this book, and I'm told Mark Twain is a humorist. He's hilarious. I used to watch the Mark Twain Awards where, like, Will Ferrell and Tina Fey, they they both won Mark Twain Awards for humor. So I'm like, if, if they're getting awards for something that Mark Twain is doing, Mark Twain must be a comic genius. <laughs> and I read a book... Or I read a short story about a frog that gets buck put in it and it can't jump. And that's the that's the, the, that's the joke. I'm like, I read it again. I read it a second time. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, not funny. Not funny at all. So I read another story about some guy whose brother or friend died. So he has to go and, and take the body from one place to another in a train. But then the the coffin gets swapped out with a, a a thing that looks like coffin but it's full of guns and some cheese and so him and and the person he's sharing a car with they're stuck in this car on a train during a blizzard and it's and the cheese starts to smell bad so then they have to try and figure out ways to overpower the cheese but it's just making it worse so then they have to stand outside the car for the entire trip and they almost die and that's the joke that there's cheese in a train and i'm like this is not funny tyler does not get 1800s uh humor and he's very upset about it guys it's so dumb look if you have a short story that is legitimately funny and it and it translates to nowadays the humor still translates 
Like, I don't have to be racist, and I don't have to understand what this sort of specific cheese is. Send it my way. I will give Mark Twain a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Until then, Mark Twain's not a funny guy. Oh, my gosh. He's not funny. Controversial opinion. (laughs) (laughs) So, in the interest of time, uh, we're going to stop ranting about Mark Twain's early, uh, early sketches. I don't like it. Uh, around this time, he discovered his quote-unquote call to literature, um, even though humor was considered lowbrow at the time. Yeah. So uh, society was in agreement with Tyler that funny was not cool. No, or that because he was people not funny. thought it was funny. People thought it was funny. It's just it not just wasn't as, respected. Yeah. It was like comics in our Stan Lee episode. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he kept writing for newspapers. Um, he started doing lecture tours in 1866, which would be something that he returned to anytime he needed money. Like, yeah. I don't know that he loved it, but it was an easy way to make good money. As soon as he made his first speech, people he realized people loved him. And he was he had huge str- stage fright when he first started. Really? Yeah. And the the a lot of the way that he did his deadpan and his silences and, and his... His beats where he would just kind of wait for the joke to land or, or build up anticipation was because he was terrified <laughs> when he first started and he was he couldn't make himself talk. But he'd just sit there and like look at the crowd and everyone's just like waiting for him to start talking. <laughs> and then he'd say something really funny. So it, it he just leaned into that. Oh, that's cool. And but it's not that funny. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> So in 1867, he moved to New York City again, um, this time as a traveling correspondent for the San Francisco Alta, California, and a couple other newspapers. The Alta ended up paying for him to travel to Europe to write, um, which ended up being a very influential trip. So on the way over, he met um, Mary, and I'm spacing on her last name, but someone who would end up being like a a motherly figure to him and like a mentor. I don't know about this. Um, I forget what her last name was, so that's very bad of me. Yeah. Um, Way to go. And then he was in Europe uh, for a while, and he also went to like the Middle East and stuff on this trip. Uh, Is this, this is the Middle East one? He went to Europe um, and the Holy Land. Yeah. So so like the area between the Jordan River. This was actually paid for by a church. This was like one of the first... Um, like celebrity cruises that ever existed. Well, did the church pay the Alta? They paid for him to go. But the Alta was paying him. I don't know. All I know is that he, the church, maybe the church was putting on this trip because it was supposed to be like a pilgrimage. And so he somehow got his name in there and then some celebrities pulled out. And so they're like, oh, this kind of famous celebrity Mark Twain guy Who is had here. like one famous Let's publication. Let's move him up on the list so then he became VIP just because nobody somebody else dropped out. So then he he started to form a, a group of friends on this boat that were all like sacrilegious because at this point Twain has disavowed any religious beliefs. He's he's not a fan of religion, especially the Protestant religion that he grew up in, but he knew enough about it to understand what was um, very important to people. And so he played the line a lot. Like he really encouraged his brother to become a pastor. Um, he encouraged a lot of people in their faith, but then at the same time, he called people out for their shit. And this, this trip right here was just so, he had so much fuel for calling people out and being sarcastic and being sacrilegious against these hypocritical people. Um, so honestly, it was really interesting to read it, hear about it. 
And hey, if any church wants to send me <laughs> to the Holy Land, a free trip to go just kind of hang out with people so that I can write about it, I'm I'm down. If you are in a church and you, you're looking, hey, I, we have an extra $5,000. <laughs> Let's send this fat guy over to Jerusalem. <laughs> That's a, a very a very good uh, ploy for a good pitch. You yeah. like my pitch? Yeah. yeah, I think it'll work. I think the Baptists are we're going to be hearing that from them real soon. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So on the boat back, he met a man named Charlie Langdon, um, and they struck up a friendship there's something about like he saw a picture or something of charlie's yeah. sister olivia mm-hmm. and was like wow that's the hottest chick i've ever seen damn, damn girl um so but it wasn't until like a few months later when they were all back in new york city that charlie was like yo want to come to dinner with me and my family uh in in new york city and he was like sure and that's where he finally met the girl from the picture yep. olivia yeah um I don't. I think it was the thing back then that you were hot if you were like a very ill person because <laughs> she was like not a healthy human. Right. She was sick all the time. Wasn't it Lovecraft's mom that took uh, arsenic to keep her her uh, skin pale or whatever like that because they were very Victorian in the way that they did things. Yeah. So I guess that's why Olivia was hot was because she had terrible health problems. <laughs> um, but she came from a wealthy family. They were like new money. Yeah. Uh, her dad made his money in coal. Um, they were also like very progressive and abolitionist. Right. Uh, which, you know, was unique for just after the Civil War. Sure. Um, but they were from New York. So I, they have that northern perspective. Um, and then so Twain uh he went like a while without talking to her after the first time they met. Uh, and then it's like he was invited to stay at their house and like they got really close. And then he ended up just like courting her by letter for most of 1868. He likes those long distance relationships. Yeah, he really does. Um, uh, he proposed at least once and she turned him down. Um, and then she, because that's like the thing to do if you're yeah. a proper lady. You never say yes Not the, on first the first time. the first time, buddy. She finally agreed to his proposal in November of 68. Um, and meanwhile, he'd been working on writing his account of that big transatlantic voyage that he took. Right. Um, so it was published as The Innocence Abroad in 1869. Even though he that's not the name he called it. What did he call it originally? He originally called it The New Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was so sacrilegious that they were like, nope. Nope. <laughs> change it. So he changed it. They also had like several publishing delays and he was getting like oh, really yeah. pissy with his publisher. Like almost a year after it was originally announced. Yeah. For some reason, his publisher was like, oh, we're going to publish it in the spring, early spring. And then he was yeah. like, no, nah, we're going to do it late spring. Uh, I think maybe fall now. And like Twain was about ready to kill him. He, he sent a letter <laughs> saying like, look, if it's like you've you've pushed it off to now it's going to be a fall. Like when am, when should I expect a letter for you to tell me it's going to be a winter? When should I expect the next letter for you to tell me it's going to be another spring like it originally would would have been? Look, man, I don't I don't care that it's being pushed off. I just need to be told sooner because I look like an idiot. Yeah, he keeps telling his family and friends that his no, book I is going to come I out. <laughs> I got a deal. I swear. And it was like a really long book too because this was something that I didn't know about before. They had um subscription books which was like instead of books being in a bookstore it's like someone goes door basically a magazine salesperson going door to door selling you these books and for some reason the publishers were like these books have to be long af right so i think that one was like 
2,000 pages or something. They might have cut it down. I thought it was only 600-something pages. And even that, I thought was One of them was in the 2,000 range, and then they cut it down. I think they also did, like, things to try to make them longer, like adding in full-page illustrations and stuff. Sure. But for some reason, they really wanted long books back then. Yeah. Um, So finally, when it was published, it ended up being a great success, but not, like, as fast as I think he had built it up to be in his mind. So at first, he was kind of disappointed. And he's like... He's very obsessed with numbers, too. And he had a habit of, like, overstating the numbers publicly. Yeah. Like, he'd tell other people, like, oh, it sold, like, 100,000 copies in its first year or something. Or he would, like, kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. It did end up selling really, really well, and it made him quite a bit of money. Is it – I don't remember which book it was, but I remember the number – in conversion, it would have essentially made him $250,000 in today's money. It might have been this one. I feel like it was his first book, because um, I pay attention to that. Like Stephen King's first book, Carrie, made him in what would be today's numbers, like $3 million. Yeah, so whatever it made him was a lot. Like authors these days on their first books, they get paid shit. Nothing. So the fact that he got a lot of money was a big deal. And it was a big deal because for the longest time, he'd been very like poor he, like yeah. um i remember reading that his sister like kept hounding him for money to send to their mother mm-hmm. because his sister who was a widow with kids was providing all of the financial support for his mom really yeah. um and so finally at this point he was able to like send back a thousand dollars for his mom's care and yeah. stuff and he also had the stress of like marrying a girl from a rich family Very, yeah so they get married 1870 yep and as a wedding gift um her dad bought them a mansion in buffalo what? that's insane and he broke down and started crying and being like dude you can stay here whenever you want there's yep. always a room for you which is like yeah obviously, obviously. There's room for him. <laughs> even if my uh father-in-law didn't buy me a house he'd always be welcome yeah. at my house probably but it came with like a carriage and like yeah. all that and all service, that good stuff all kinds of stuff all that stuff um, so he also, with financial help from Olivia's dad, ended up buying part of the newspaper, um, The Express of Buffalo. Mm. And he also was writing a column for a New York City magazine called The Galaxy. Mm. Um, so they're starting to build their life there. They have their, do you have anything before their nope. first shot? So their first son, Langdon, or only son, Langdon, was born in November of 1870. So pretty soon after y'all got married, guys. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he was a, a pretty sick child. Yeah. And this is sad. This is another sad one. And another death um, toll for him because he, he made it, I think, nine months. Uh, I thought he months. made it two years because they actually had uh, a second child before Langdon died. Okay. All right. He wasn't very old when he died. And uh, this is another one where uh, Sam thinks that it's his fault because he took him out for a stroll and um, he was so lost in thought while he was on the walk. It was cold, blistery day and and the like the blankets came off of the baby and so the baby ended up getting a, a cold while he was on the walk and then the baby died several days later from the cold. Yeah. Which I mean and probably nobody, not his fault no. because it had been sick uh, he had been sick so many other yeah, times. Like it, he was born sick and it wasn't his fault. Nobody blamed him for it but he blamed himself. Right. Um <clears throat> so at that point then they were left with their daughter Olivia Susan uh, nicknamed Susie, and they kind of like w- went into the overcorrecting mode and like totally doted on her all the time. Yeah. They she was like the light of their life basically. They they spent all their attention on her. 
Um, and around this time, uh, Twain was working with his friend Charles Dudley Warner on a satirical novel. So he hadn't written any novels before. This right. was the first for him. It was um, about political and financial corruption in the U.S. It was called The Gilded Age. Um, and ended up being published in 1873. And the experience was a good one for him. So he started writing Tom Sawyer after that. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the big ones. It's, yeah. Um, and then around this time, too, they had their second daughter, Clara. Mm-hmm. The family then moved into a still unfinished house in Nook Farm, Connecticut, which I guess was a place where a lot of like upper class society people lived um, i couldn't tell you their neighbors included warner so the guy he was he wrote the novel with and uh harriet beecher stowe of uncle tom's cabin fame oh. so they were you know making it <laughs> um tom sawyer uh came out in 1876 so that one for those who aren't familiar because i actually haven't read that book um it follows it's the adventures of a young boy growing up along the mississippi river yep. um it's kind of like it's more lighthearted, right? Like oh, it's yeah. very adventurous. Yeah. Um, and and when he wrote it, he when he wrote uh, when he finished it and gave it to the publisher, he he specifically said this is actually a uh, book for adults. It's a book for adults. He said it like three or four times, and then everyone read it and they're like, "No, this is a book for boys. <laughs> this is a boys' adventure book." And then he's like, "Yeah, it is. It it's, is. It's, it's but it appeals to adults because they see themselves as children in it. They're yeah. like, oh, yeah, I remember, like, yeah. all those adventures we went on as kids. And, and you see a lot of, uh, like, uh, um, uh, his his childhood love is in there. Becky, you know, like, that's her name in, in Tom <laughs> Sawyer. Um, so you see a lot of the characters being pulled from his own childhood. Right. And, and this I mean, is the where it really too. starts, I think, is you start to see, like, Oh, I can tap into the well of of characters that I have taken into my brain from all the way back in the day. Right, he's and got I, all this fodder, and I think that's where we why we start to see him working on Tom or on Huckleberry Huck and uh, and Jim. Right. So Tom Sawyer um, sold really well from its first publication and has never gone out of print. Yep. Um, and like you alluded to, after that, like. Immediately after that, basically, mm-hmm. he started writing Huck Finn's autobiography. Huck had actually been a character in Tom Sawyer, um, and Clements thought that he had his own story to tell, basically. But it took him forever to write it. Yep. He he basically wrote it in fits and starts over almost a decade, usually getting distracted by other projects along yeah, the way. Yeah, because he's doing a lot. He's, yeah. Like you said, anytime he needed money, he'd go on a lecture tour. tour lecture circuit uh and and then he's working he's writing for newspapers he's writing for other people he's he still doing, owns part of yeah, a newspaper at know, this and, point and things are getting very political he's doing a lot of speeches for a lot of big names uh in this period is this where he goes and does the speech there's the one speech that he does that he thinks almost ruined him Oh, I don't know about that one. Yeah, so he, he's got his three – there's, like, three people being honored at this big writer's conference or whatever. And so they're like, oh, let's get let's get Tom – or Mark Twain to to do a speech. And he gets up with these jokes in mind because this is who he is. He's satirical. He's, he's mean but in a, you know, like, kind of wink and, and <laughs> sort of thing. And so he gets up to do it. Um, and like halfway through his speech, he realizes nobody's laughing and the people, the three people that are being honored, he's making fun of, and he's about to do the twist where he starts making fun of himself and honoring them. But then he just starts croaking because he can't, 
he can't get past the fact that nobody is laughing. Oh, no. So he freaks out and he finishes it, but nobody thinks it's, or he thinks that nobody thinks it's funny. And so he just gets off stage and he moves to Europe for a freaking <laughs> year and a half. Yeah, the and, whole family and went. And in that time, he, like, they, he wrote to all of all three of them saying, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. And all of them are like, dude, it was totally fine. And then even the newspapers are like, everybody was laughing. <laughs> it was hilarious. But in his mind, he thought he had crossed the line. He like, and oh, he had shit. destroyed himself. He had that feeling about a lot of his work. Because, like, I, I don't know if it started this early, but he had a lot of writing that he was like, don't publish this until yeah. after I die. Oh, yeah. Even though, like, some of it uh, wasn't that scandalous, but he, like, got so paranoid. He was like, nope, this is too too sensational. Yeah. And uh, and he did. He had a lot of writing. And so this is where we won't spend a lot of time on it because we're running, we're running low on time <laughs> at this point. But um, he – this is where I think we start to see the defining uh, stance that he has on slavery and the treatment of blacks. And um, so <laughs> – and then, and then he's also writing pieces that are very um, scathing towards people who treat black people badly, especially at a time when um, when people are being lynched mm-hmm. for nothing. And there's there's a point where someone is uh, there's a black man who's lynched because he is accused of raping women or a woman, and he's killed. And then afterwards, they find out that it wasn't him. So then he's he's uh, pardoned, right? <laughs> Little late. Yeah, exactly. And so he writes a story, and I can't repeat it because you won't let me say the words. Um, but he, it, the story name is just another N word. That's the name of the story, and in it, he's he takes this very. Um, sarcastic and demeaning tone towards people, uh, you know, saying like, oh, you know, this guy died for these reasons, but he's just another N-word, you know, and who cares if, if it's, uh, if someone like him dies in the, uh, in the way of justice, and it doesn't matter how many N-words are killed in the way of making sure that one guilty person is killed yeah a, a hundred guilty or a hundred innocent n-words can can be killed it's not a big deal i'm paraphrasing highly paraphrasing but he seriously like he was like nope i'm not i'm not having this shit at all and i was really surprised because again i grew up i don't know why i got to 31 years old thinking that he was a pretty racist <laughs> dude but probably because he would use the n-word mm-hmm. and it's in his work like huckleberry finn and so I was always told, like, oh, yeah, that's, that dude's racist. Or anybody who uses that word is just a racist. So did he write that essay around the time that Huck Finn came out or Sometime before? in that decade. In I that know decade. it has to be in there somewhere. That's interesting because there's um, there's a line somewhere in Huck Finn where it's like um, somebody's talking about, like, an accident or something. And they ask Huck if anybody died. And Huck answers, no, just an N-word. Right. And, it, like, the shocking part is supposed to be that, oh, they're not people. So. Right. It doesn't and, matter yeah, that they died. It's it's crazy. I think it's I think to me, and I was explaining this to someone else um, who who listens to our show. So thanks for listening, and <laughs> listening to me rant again. Um, I think that the way that he started using it was really a turning point for for the audience and American people to start understanding that that this word is wrong mm-hmm. because he's using it. He's using it in a culture that allows it to be used, right? 
but he's using it in a way that demeans people who use it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not okay to call people this. It's not okay to treat people this way. It's not okay to think that black people are not people. And his choice of a narrator, I think, drives that home even more, choosing, like, a young boy. Who has grown up in that culture who can see people like that and then changes his opinion of black people because his best friend ends up being a black guy. Mm Mm-hmm. And the whole story is like his moral struggle about like, oh, maybe I should turn this guy in because he's property, quote unquote, and he's running away and that's wrong and illegal. And then to get to the point where he's willing to go to hell to save this guy because he he thinks I've done the wrong thing by lying to these people and saving this black guy. So I'm going to go to hell. And if that's what it means to do the right thing for me to go to hell, that's what I'll have to do. Like, that's such a huge that's yeah. huge. And that's the whole point of Huckleberry Finn is like and and a theme for Mark Twain of like, look, the church, the Protestant church was willing to justify slavery so that we could continue to have it in America. And that's wrong. And so sometimes what you're being told is the right thing, religion and your your church, they're wrong. And you have to look at people for people. You have to look at a situation and go, what's really the right thing? Instead of being told, well, this is how it should be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I I love it. I adore it. And I, I'm so excited to have learned about that through Mark Twain. And I'm going to read Huckleberry Finn specifically so that I can hear his process through that whole decade. Right. And, like, from his childhood going into it because I think that's where it all comes together. Exactly. Um, and interestingly, I mean, I we know now that uh, this book is banned in lots of schools across the country and that's like a whole separate debate. But yeah. when it first came out, it was actually banned in a lot of places too. And you mentioned Little Women earlier um, and Louisa, Louisa May Alcott wrote, if Mr. Clemens cannot think of something better to tell our pure-minded lads and lasses, um, then it shouldn't be, shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. So here's this other one of his contemporaries like shitting all over his work, yeah. which is really good. We all know, maybe no little women, we, uh, Louisa. Uh, yeah, I, and and that's that's the thing though is he wasn't pure uh, Puritan minded, mm-hmm. and so he was, if anything, he was a countercultural type of guy because he because that was the culture at the time. Puritans and Quakers and Protestants and all of that was very very a part of the culture. And he was like, no, I'm I'm more about being humanistic and finding morality through our own lifetime. Right. Um, and that's where he landed. I don't agree with him completely, but I do agree with treating people with respect. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's just where I land with him. Well, and- um, instead of being bummed by the... Uh- the reception by other literary figures, he was actually quite pleased with that. He's like, oh, we're going to sell at least 25,000 extra copies now because of that. Because she gave <laughs> because, him some, some press. Yeah, because they gave him uh, bad press. And, you know, everybody wants to read something that people say you shouldn't. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so he ended up writing, like, several sequels to Huck Finn, but none of them w- were, like, anywhere near as good as the original. And um, one guy whose review of this I was reading, um, he said most of the problem was that the other ones were, like, too comedic. Hmm. Uh, took too much of a humorous approach to it um and so yeah but all said and done this was like one of the better times in his life he was doing really well um 
in his later life, things started to take a turn. The publishing company that he had started um, began floundering in the late 1880s. He got in deep debt. He made um, some really bad investments, one of them that cost him a couple hundred thousand dollars before he finally gave up on it. Um, So he ended up assigning his property and all of his copyrights to Olivia and then declared personal bankruptcy. Um, he kept publishing, but he started getting I <laughs> bankruptcy. It actually worked for him, though. Nice. <laughs> he kept publishing things, but he was um, kind of upset over the public's perception of him as a funny man. Yeah. Uh, he he tried writing things under. Uh, he, he tried publishing things anonymously um, to try to uh, to see what the reaction was going to sure. be. In one case, like people figured out it was him right away, so yeah. it didn't really work. Stephen um, King did the same thing. So yeah, did J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. If you're if you're being typecast into a specific type of book, you want to try something different. All authors want to write something different. Right. But everyone's gonna be like, ooh. They're gonna be like, Mark oh, Mark Twain. That's gonna be funny. It's like, no, it's not. It's not funny. <laughs> um, and then in 1895, he set off on another international lecture tour. He spent a lot of time away from Olivia, y'all. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that says about their marriage. I know they were very different people. Like she was super serious. Yeah. Which seems like a weird match for a guy who's a humorist. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Uh, there was something about how he always like tried to explain his jokes to her, and I'm like, oh, that's cute. I I started to get a little teary eyed when, spoiler alert, she dies. Um, because this is 200 years ago. Um, <laughs> when she's dying and their how their relationship was at that point, and I think that they're you know you can be different and still be absolutely and utterly in love with someone. And I think he totally was. You think he was? Yeah. I think he spent a lot of time away from his family, but got to make that money. Um, in 1896, their beloved Susie, favorite child, died at age 24 of spinal meningitis uh, mm-hmm. while he was out of the country. So again, he's like devastated, blaming himself for not being there when yep. his favorite child dies. Yep. Um, this like impacted the family so much that they didn't even celebrate birthdays or holidays for a couple of years after this. They were just like yeah, in a perpetual getting... state of mourning. Yeah. They're so depressed. Um, and this also impacted his writing or maybe it was going to be a natural uh, transformation anyway. But around this time, Um, Even though he'd always written about politics and social issues, his later essays and fiction got even more like focused on morals and they didn't have the same humor that he had. Like you were talking about um, his one earlier about the man who was lynched, Mm -hmm. how he was like being sarcastic about it. That kind of went away and he just got like more direct. He was like, yo, you guys are fucked up. Yeah, (laughs) you need to. You need to stop this. So he was right. Stop writing, imperialism. Yeah, stop imperialism. <laughs> stop anti-Semitism. Stop lynching people. Yeah. And he even got into international politics and uh, talked about the brutal and exploitative Belgian rule in the Congo. So he was just Which, like shooting if, at everybody. If you if you want if you don't know anything about that, uh, there's an episode of Behind the Bastards where they cover that, and oh my god, it's awful. Oh my. god. God, it's awful. What is behind the bastards? On? It's a podcast where oh. they they take one person and talk about how awful they were, but then also weird quirks about them. Like Adolf Hitler would read and write young adult fan fiction, oh um, or Saddam, uh, uh, um, Osama bin Laden uh, had a whole bunch of hentai porn oh before God. he was killed. Saddam Hussein was. Uh, he would write romance novels, I think, or Ew. something like that. And so, like, there's all these weird things about people. Um, but there's one episode where he they talk about the guy that 
like just just destroyed the Congo. The I think it I don't want to say who it was because I'm not sure and I don't want to start international wars with <laughs> with Belgium. Yeah. Um but yeah, it it was fucked up. Yeah, so he is just taking on everybody right now. Um and then yeah, as as you said, uh in 1904, Livy dies after she had been sick for a couple of years at that point. Um he was traveling at the time again. Yes, he traveled like you said earlier. He was traveling anytime he needed to make money. That's just what he started like that just became his thing. And he he ended up coming home when they're like, dude, she's really sick. So he ended up coming home and then they wouldn't let them be in the same room together because she was so sick. Yeah, he got to see her for like five minutes a day. Two minutes a day. I mean that's what the that's what my biography <laughs> <Mine> said <like>. five. <laughs> One minute a day. It was a no. good day. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um it, for less than ten minutes a day. That's what we can agree on. <laughs> um, he would pass notes to her under the door, like notes that Aww. were reminiscent of the notes that he would send to her when they were younger. Um, and when they were younger, he would he constantly talked to me. He's like, when we're old people, you and I are going to be sitting next to each other. We're going to be reading books and talking about all the new authors and books that are coming out. And you and I are just going to be just next to each other as we grow old. And, like, it's such a beautiful sentiment. And as she's dying in this room that he's not allowed to go into, he's reminding her of, like, this is what I, I just want to be near you. I just I, I wanted to grow old with you. I wanted to have us just talk. And I'm like, I'm tearing up listening to this. And um and so she ends up dying and nobody knows it. Yeah. For how long? For, I, I don't know how long exactly, but basically she couldn't lay down because it would put her in pain. Aww. So someone, I, I don't remember who it was. I want to say it's her sister, but I, I'm not exactly sure, was sitting up with her and she was leaning on her sister. I think it's her sister. Uh, just, you know, to kind of, and she was supposed to, everyone thought she was just asleep and she was talking to everyone for, you know, some time. And then after a few minutes, she just stopped talking and they checked and she was dead. And so he went in and, and she, he saw that she had died and like, he was, it's just super sad. Like all he wanted was to be around her and, you know, enjoy his present, her presence and stuff. And even in the end, the very end, he was not allowed to be near her. Aww. Like that to me is very sad. And I don't know, I, I don't think that he wanted to be away on these trips doing stuff. I think it's, he, it was the only way he knew how, how to make money. To keep them alive. I don't know. That's just my doing his manly duty. Yeah. 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 His his life was plagued with a lot of very sad deaths. Yeah. Um so, you know, a few years after she died, he moved into a new house in Connecticut. Uh he named it Stormfield because people name their mansions shit. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Um his daughter Clara got married in 1909 and left for Europe by the end of that year. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, his only remaining family in in America, Jean, his daughter, mm-hmm. died that same month of a heart attack at age 29. Yeah, she had um, suffered from severe epilepsy for a while, so she had health problems too. It's not like it's normal to die at 29. Um, he was too grief stricken to even like go to her burial. Uh, he stopped working on his autobiography. He'd been working on that for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, he basically like went to Bermuda to try to escape from all of the Just sadness. Yeah. Uh, in January, so like a month after she died, basically, 
Um, and then by April, he was having severe chest pains, not in a good way. Yeah. Uh, his his biographer, who was named Albert Bigelow Payne, um, he went to Bermuda to, to get him and basically just like brought him back to to home, uh, where he died on April twenty first. Yeah. So it like losing one of his only remaining children basically pushed him over the top. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he ended up being buried in the family plot in New York alongside his wife, son, and two of his daughters. Clara was the only one who survived him. Yeah. Man. Why why do we always end with death? <laughs> But here's the thing. He was gay. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, not even a little No bit. gay stuff in, no in this No gay one. stuff. Uh, if anything, maybe slight adulterism, but even that was, like, very light. It was one, of their, one of their, like, uh, not servants, but people that they brought in to assist while, uh, while people were getting sick and dying. Oh. Some people were like, oh, yeah, she was really... She was a temptress and <laughs> might have tempted him in his old age after, you know, I don't know, after <laughs> Libby died, she went she went for the big man. I don't know. There Any, was one sentence of that. Anytime that somebody describes, like an old person describes someone as a temptress, I'm just like, oh, no, you're just sexist. <laughs> like, yeah. She was just like a good looking person. She's just a normal person. No, she was like very dramatic or something. So pe- people could imagine that. How dare she? <laughs> um, it's always sad because we always end when they're dead. I mean, I guess the... And people die. And generally, life is at towards the end of your life, all you really start to accumulate is more death around you. Right. I mean, he did like accumulate a lot of praise in his later years, too. Yeah. Uh, he was honored by a lot of people. Uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, um, when he was running for presidency, was in the same area as Mark Twain and he and people started cheering and he thought it was for him but then it turns <laughs> out it was Mark Twain so he was like I would be much happier if that dude was dead oh. straight up he said that because <laughs> he excellent. was pissed that Mark Twain was more popular than he was I mean that makes me happy <laughs> <laughs> not that uh, Teddy Roosevelt was mad but that Mark Twain got his got his appreciation praise, yeah. I mean he, he spoke at a Ulysses S. Grant uh thing where um the whole there was like six hours of speeches all to honor ulysses s grant and he's there and he's just stone-faced the whole time literally um mark twain's like yeah he didn't move literally (laughs) didn't he i thought he was a statue at one point he's like so my goal was to make him laugh and i fucking did it (laughs) and he was the last one to do his speech and Something about, I don't know, man, again, I don't find him funny at all, but his speech was something uh, uh, to the effect of, like, comparing Ulysses S. Grant to a baby, and then, like, something about how, like, if a baby wants to become president, then he needs to be like Ulysses S. Grant. I don't know. (laughs) I don't get it. That's a little bit funny. I guess, but I just don't get it. But apparently, it was the only thing that made him laugh, that made Ulysses S. Grant laugh. So... Uh, so yeah, he was he was honored quite a bit in his older age for writing Tom Sawyer, writing Huckleberry Finn, uh, and all of the crazy stuff that he would do. He'd play pranks in in the news. He'd write fake things in the news just to mess with people. He's a troll. He is a troll, one hundred percent. That's exactly what Mark Twain was. He was a the troll. original troll. Yeah, and it and so um, I I, I found it interesting. He had. He had a complex relationship 
with religion. Um, having grown up in a Protestant uh, church and really disagreeing with pastors and his mom and everything that he was taught. But then at the same time, he was very spiritual as a person. He had visions a lot. He, he had a vision of his brother dying like two days before he died. Henry, the one on the steamboat. Uh, he had, you know, he would sleepwalk and, you know, the bad omen. And, um, and he would constantly pay attention to his visions. And then at the same time, when he would write a lot of his stories, his like news stories and such, he would take a different approach because he didn't want to just write news. He wanted to write what could be the news or something, you know, and like when he got to, uh, to Rome and people wanted to write, you know, a, a story on Rome, he's like, nah, everybody's written about Rome. I'm instead I'll write about Rome looking at me. What do I look like to the Romans? Or he wrote, um, he wrote what it was like, what it would be like if in his day and age, you know, 1850 something, if there was the assassination of Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. how would he, as a reporter, write that Cover story? That. And so he did that. He wrote it in like this ancient Rome, you know, reporting this Roman reporter reporting the death of, of Caesar sort of thing. And so he always he he imagined he he lived in this this visual and spiritual world of his own and and then applied it to the real world and so i always found that really interesting hearing that of of like he's very spiritual he's just not religious and that's a better place to end than death. <laughs> Tyler, where can the people find us? Oh, we're going straight into the outro. They can find us on, at lewisandlovecraft.com. Um, you can go to our website, check it, check stuff out there. You can go to facebook.com slash lewisandlovecraft. You can find us on Instagram at lewisandlovecraft. Or you can email us directly at lewisandlovecraft.gmail. Or <laughs> lewisandlovecraft at gmail. at gmail.com guys you can write to us comments uh things that you feel about what we're talking about things that we might have gotten wrong things of encouragement that'd be great um you can also give us your book reviews of things that we've talked about all the way back to narnia um, <laughs> all the way to this one if you want to talk about your review of huckleberry finn write it up send it in if you have flash fiction like 500 to a thousand word story that you just want to write get out there and you want to hear us read it send it in we'll read it um so just email us i'm lonely and i want to <laughs> read stuff um and as always we want to thank jake basson for our awesome intro music you can find him on soundcloud.com slash jake basson b is in boy a s s e n he has all, all sorts of different music on there and i hear that he is willing to make intros for other people too yeah, I think I've said that. I don't know if he really is, but I'm sure he will. Oh, it's a Tyler lie that it's I'm just perpetuating. <laughs> um, you should subscribe to us. You can subscribe to us anywhere that you find podcasts, whether it's on Spotify, Apple, or Podcast Addict, or something. You can subscribe and see new stuff coming out, like the new type of, of extra episode that we started doing last week which was our correspondence episodes. Yeah, um, those are super exciting. Basically, we're getting together with our friends and talking about books. 
yeah. or whatever other kind of media. Uh, it's it's kind of like free flowing discussion. So way more conversational, yeah. way less like. And in 1863, he blah blah blah. <laughs> like it's it's much more conversational and fun. It gives us a chance not only to talk to our friends, but hopefully new people, and and make some new friends. Yeah. Uh, so. If you want to be on a correspondence episode, you should let us know. Yeah. Um, and also make sure and rate and review us. Uh, if the platform you listen to us on uh, enables that, mostly iTunes is the one we're looking at. ITunes. That's really important. I, I think Spotify has a review. Maybe. Maybe. You can also do it on Facebook, but iTunes is really the place to go. Cool. Um, and, and then what's yeah. the most important thing they can do to help us? Tell a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Tell one friend this week. Seriously, if you're listening to our show, seriously, tell one friend. I know we say it every single episode, but I'm, I'm demanding it. <laughs> just, just tell one friend. It takes no time at all. Just drop it on a Reddit like message board or something. Oh, man. Tell your internet friends. If you guys are on Reddit, you should totally throw us up there because I don't understand. I don't Reddit. I don't. I don't, I don't understand get it. it at all. <laughs> yeah. So tell tell your friends, uh, get us some new listeners. And what's our next episode going to be about, Hannah? So I'll just leave you one one little clue, Ooh. a quote. You are and always have been my dream. Is that is that Batman? <laughs> <laughs> I don't-